blessing to to be here with you all. Um, as Pastor Sean said, we've had the opportunity to uh, get to know one another a little bit over the last year. Um, and as he said, I am married to my wife, Laura. Uh, we've been married for almost 12 years now. We have two beautiful daughters. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't be here with us this morning. Um, I, we, we served in West Africa in the country of Togo as missionaries. And then uh, the Lord blessed us with the opportunity to serve uh, uh, myself to serve as one of the pastors at Missio Day Church in Cincinnati. And then for about the last year and a half, we have lived here in, in Louisville. And I'm so thankful for your pastor, for uh, uh, Pastor Sean, and for the faithful uh, over 100 years of ministry uh, here at, at, at First Baptist Church of, of Eastwood. I'm thankful for that, that there's been a gospel witness in this town for over 100 years. What a, what a grace, what a gift. From God that that is. We're going to be this morning in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, if you have a Bible and would like to turn there with me. And we'll read, starting in verse 27, and we'll read down through verse 33. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us your word. You have, you have spoken to us. We can hold in our hands what you want us to know about you and about the world and about ourselves, about what's to come. What a, what a gift you've given us. And our prayer this morning is that through your spirit, your word would be illumined. That it would, it would shine brightly into our minds and our hearts. Father, have your way this morning. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again to save his people. We pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus and his disciples have just left a town called Bethsaida, which was a small fishing town on the northern coast of the Galilean Sea to kind of set the tone for where we're going. They've now traveled directly north to this little area called Caesarea Philippi. Herod had built a temple to 
Caesar Augustus there and then Herod's son Philip kind of erected this town around this temple for people to come and gather. And so he named it after Caesar and then added the name Philippi at the end, most likely to distinguish it from a, a, a better known city called Caesarea. And as they were traveling, Jesus begins to ask his disciples some questions. We could say these are some of life's most important questions. He first asked them, who do people say that I am? Then more precisely and perhaps more importantly, he asks, who do you say that I am? This, in a sense, is a climax of sorts of this tale of the disciples up to this point where they've been traveling with Jesus, observing him and his ministry, seeing all that he's done, experiencing these things alongside of him, at times being very confused by the meaning of it all. But now in this apex of moments, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? With all of that as context, who do you think I am? Both the life, excuse me, sorry about that. We're losing your batteries, Gotcha. No more crucial question for us to ask and for us to answer things than this. Who is Jesus? He first asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? He starts by casting his net wide, if you will. What's the, what's the buzz around town? See, up to this point, Jesus is famous. He's, he's fed thousands. He's cast out demons. He's healed paralytics. He's even raised a little girl from the dead. And he, he has become famous in the region as, as a rabbi, as a miracle worker. People are coming. Anytime people hear of where he's at, they're coming from all over the place to see what Jesus will do next. And so he asked, what's, what's the buzz? Who do people think I am? What are people saying? And the disciples respond, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. And we know this from chapter 6, that Herod Antipas was in the line of this thinking. And it seems that others were thinking very similarly. Perhaps this was because of the way in which Jesus spoke with authority about the coming of the kingdom, just like John the Baptist did. Still others said that he was maybe Elijah who had come back from the dead. Others said, you're, you're, you're a prophet. See, there had been silence from God, right? For 400 years, there had been silence. And so some people thought, this Jesus, he is he's finally, God has finally sent us another prophet to speak to us. Maybe that's who this is. But then Jesus asked the more pressing, the more important question, who do you say that I am? Understanding some people say I'm John the Baptist, some people think I'm just another prophet, but what do, what do you think? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. Matthew records that Peter continues, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What a confession. What a statement of belief. You are the Christ. You're the son of God. In this one statement, the whole of the Old Testament promises comes crashing into view. 
from Genesis 3 and the promise that God would send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the enemy, to the promise of Abraham that God would bless all the nations of the earth through him, to the promise of David where there would be a king who would sit on David's throne forever. And all of these promises come crashing into view. When Peter says, you are the Christ, it means the anointed one, the Messiah who would come to set God's people free. And these men were finally realizing that Jesus was not simply a good rabbi. He was not just a miracle worker. He was the promised one that had been promised for ages. And I can, I can almost imagine the grin that comes on Jesus' face as he says, yes, finally. Because if you remember from the gospel stories, these disciples were kind of like you and me in that they weren't always the brightest. They, they, they didn't always get everything that Jesus was trying to say. And I can almost see a little smirk. As Peter says this, you're, you're, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, yes. Yes, I am. Again, Matthew's account of the gospel narrative records for us in Matthew 16, verses 17 to 19, that Jesus responds like this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Peter. He's talking about Peter. For flesh and blood, he says, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. And whatever you bind on earth, he says, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says that Peter has answered correctly the question, who is Jesus? He says that Peter didn't come to this conclusion simply by finally gathering enough data to be able to logically conclude, yes, this is the promised one. That's, that's not the point. Jesus says that Peter is blessed because God the Father has given to Peter the understanding, the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. It's not simply a logical conclusion. It is a divine revelation that God the Son has put on flesh and come to rescue His people. The promised one has come. And Jesus tells Peter that upon this confession, this statement of belief, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, revealed by the Father that upon this confession, He will build His undefeatable, unstoppable church. And through this confession, the church will have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, binding and loosening through the church. Will this kingdom go forth throughout the world? Now, let's, let's be... Frank, let's be honest for a moment. Sometimes we don't necessarily feel that way, right? 
Sometimes it doesn't feel like the church is unstoppable and undefeatable. But when we remember that that promise, that the church will not be overcome, that even hell's gates itself will not prevail against the church, we have to remember that that promise is rooted in the confession that Jesus is Christ. That the promised one has come, that God has put on flesh. And brothers and sisters, when we remember that, then our present circumstances or our feeling about how well we're doing as individual Christians or as a church or as the church in America or whatever, however, whatever context you want to place it in, when we remember that that promise is founded on Jesus being the Christ, then we can rest knowing that God's promises never fail. You are the Christ, Peter confesses. This is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And if that answer is true, and I would propose to you that it is, then this must change the very confession of our own hearts. See, until Christ is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in faith, then our confession typically sounds a little more like this. I am the Christ. I am the one who can save myself. I am the one that no one can defeat. I am the one that even hell can't prevail against. But when, when, when God, through the Spirit, changes our mind, changes our heart to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then that confession changes from I am my own Savior to there is nothing that I can do to save myself. Only Christ can do that. And if Jesus is the Christ, then there is no room for any other Christ, for any other promised one, for any other Savior. There's no room on the throne for two kings. He is the king. He's the truly anointed one who will sit on the throne forever. And therefore, there's no room for me on that throne. There's no room for you there, which is why we need to confess with the apostles, Jesus is the Christ. Forsake our own attempts to save ourselves and trust wholly and fully in the work of God the Son. Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and to reconcile us, to make us right with God again. Second question. What is his mission? Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark writes. There's this grand confession by the disciples of Jesus being the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one. Jesus then tells them how the church will never be defeated. It'll never be overcome. So that's, that's what he's just said, right? 
The church will never be defeated. I'm the Christ. I'm the promised one. And what's the very next thing that he tells them? That he's going to be crushed. That he has to suffer and be rejected and ultimately be killed. The Jews, including these men, it seems, to whom Jesus was speaking, understood that the Messiah would come and would set God's people free. He would save them. But their understanding of what that meant was that he would come and overthrow Rome. That he would set them free from their current oppressors. That he would establish the throne of David again as some governmental and even military power. He would come and crush the enemies. But then all of a sudden, Jesus says, actually, the way that I'm going to conquer is by being crushed. Is by being killed. There there are a myriad of texts throughout the Old Testament, even, like we said, beginning in the garden, which would point to the reality of the suffering of the Messiah to accomplish his mission of redeeming his people. We see it in Genesis 3. We see it in Isaiah 52. In 53, we see it in Psalm 22. And we could list a a, a whole host of texts. But the Jews had not necessarily connected these ideas together. They didn't understand the idea that the way in which the Messiah would conquer death would be through enduring death and coming out the other end. And so this understanding of a suffering Christ did not compute. It didn't make sense. How? Wait, so what you're saying is you're going to conquer, but you're going to conquer by being conquered? Wait, you're, you're saying you're going to crush, but you're going to crush by being crushed? That doesn't... I'm, I'm going to give the guys the benefit of the doubt here and say that's a, that's a hard one to grasp. But Jesus' mission was clear. And he says here in verse 31 that he would suffer these things, not at the hands of pagans and godless crowds. He said he was going to suffer these things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. That the scribes were going to do this. It would be the very people who were looking for the Messiah who were going to crush him. But he had come to save his people from their sins. He had come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and bring to earth the kingdom of God. And the way that he would do that would be through suffering. It would be through death. It was through resurrection. And this isn't simply an option that was pulled out of some cosmic hat. No, Jesus said that these things, the the suffering, the rejection, the killing, the resurrection, these things must happen. They had to. This, This was the divinely ordained means by which Jesus would accomplish his mission of saving his people, <coughs> excuse me, from, his, from their sins. <coughs> he had to not only be the Christ, he had to be the suffering Christ, the crucified king. Uh, 
contemporary theologian and pastor in New York City in his book, Jesus the King, gives three reasons why Jesus uses this word must, why he had to go through these things. He says there's a personal necessity, a legal necessity, and a cosmic one. Personal meaning God said he loves the world. It was a personal necessity because God loved his people so that he had to carry out the means of redeeming them. It was a legal necessity because it was legally necessary to redeem rebels by paying the price of their rebellion. Which, as we know, is death. If justice was not done, then God would be an unjust God. And friends, God is not unjust. He is good and right and gracious and merciful and just. And when he said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. If he said the wages of sin is death, then friends, death it must be. And then he says there was a cosmic necessity. This wasn't just on the individual level or even an institutional level. But this suffering had to be experienced by the Christ in order for death itself to be defeated. And for God to then make all things right again. So this suffering was not simply a divine bright idea that a light bulb suddenly flicked on. (coughs) No, it was necessary for the carrying out of the mission of God to save his people. That's his mission. And so if Jesus is the Christ, and if his mission is to save his people, to redeem his people, how do we join him on this? Look at verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter, man, Peter, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And this word rebuke, Mark Mark has used this word, excuse me, over and over. This is not a, uh, a weightless word. It is a heavy word. This was not a gentle reminder. He rebuked him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At this point, it seems that the disciples confess to fully understanding who Jesus is. He's the Christ. They did not, however, understand the plan of God to crush Jesus on the cross. As as we've said, this idea of the suffering Christ was not what they had in mind. But he had been plainly, Jesus had been plainly clear about connecting those prophecies about the suffering servant to the Messiah as the one who must suffer in order for his people <coughs> excuse me, to be saved. Peter, <coughs> again speaking up, rebukes Jesus for saying that he must suffer and die. Peter says, this will not happen. I won't let it. And Jesus responds in kind with a rebuke of his own, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Feel the weight of what Jesus has just said. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things 
of man. To try to thwart what God is going to do through the crushing of His Son is to align oneself more with Satan than with God. And this was not making sense. Jesus connects Peter to Satan here by saying, you're not thinking in line with the confession that you just made. You said, I'm the Christ. You said, I'm the promised one. I'm the Messiah. What else would that mean? And Jesus connects him by connects Peter to Satan by saying that you you are thinking more in line, in fact, with the evil one than with God. You have your heart set on the things of this world, like comfort and stability, like consistency, like governmental overthrow, rather than on the plan and the mission of God to redeem His people through the necessary and sovereignly determined means of death and resurrection. Peter was okay with Jesus as Christ, but he was not okay with the steps it would take to accomplish his mission. And we, brothers and sisters, can often, before we harp on Peter too much, we can often be the same way. We confess, you are the Christ. But then, man, we can so, I can so easily fail to walk in step with the very mission of Christ. That above all, he would save his people from their sins. We would prefer it to be carried out according to our plans and our own preferred means rather than God's means. Yes, you are the Christ. But surely my neighbors can hear the gospel from someone else. Yes, you are the Christ, but surely at my job, I just need to mainly focus on that and not worry about the person I work with who clearly doesn't know Jesus. I'm okay with the confession of Christ, but when it comes to aligning myself with the mission of Christ, that's where I hesitate. But friends, how do we abandon this hesitation? How do we join Jesus in his mission? First, by changing the subject of our thinking. Jesus told Peter, you have your mind set on things of man rather than on things of God. Peter was wrapped up in the general idea of what the Messiah would be and do rather than on what Jesus had already told him, had already communicated that would happen and how he would accomplish his mission. The late R.C. Sproul described Peter's rebuke this way, the heart of this temptation was the acquisition of a throne without the experience of pain and suffering. Peter wanted to see Jesus on the throne, but he didn't want it to cost him his life. And man, I can, I can be that way. I can be that way. I want, I, I, I genuinely want people to worship Jesus. But where I hesitate is when I think that that mission may cost me something. It may cost me some social capital in my work environment. 
It may cost me with my family who doesn't confess Jesus. It may cost me if Jesus tells me, if God calls me to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want them to know Jesus, but surely it doesn't have to cost me my life. Jesus says, no, you're, you're, you're thinking wrongly. You're aligning yourself with the thinking of this world and not living and thinking on the things of God. Second, by how do we align ourselves with Christ's mission? By conforming our lives to the mission and not the mission to our lives. By conforming our lives to the mission and not the mission to our lives. Peter was uncomfortable with the means by which this mission had to be carried out. And man, I can be the same way. I don't necessarily run toward investing in relationships that I know will cost me way more than it will gain me. But what what exactly did Jesus do with me except that exact thing? It cost him everything and gained him nothing except the expression of his love in redeeming his people. And in turn, he calls us to do the same. Not to just fit the mission in where we can, but to conform our lives to it. And so my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that our homes and our dinner tables be messy reminders that we are on mission for Christ, who suffered a death he did not deserve, defeated death by raising from the dead, is rescuing people from every nation and tribe and tongue, and friends will one day set all things right again. That's our Christ. That's our mission. So may we join Him as He does His work because He promises nothing will stop it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for welcoming us into Your kingdom by grace, not by works. We did not earn this. And Father, in continually recognizing that, may we continue to align ourselves with your work, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, and with the nations as you're drawing and calling people to yourself. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.